Welcome to the History Podcast, guys. This is your host, Jason Thomason. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are going to continue our discussion of the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And as we mentioned in the first um, part of this series, we are going to break his administration down into three parts. And this is our second part of the series on FDR versus the United States Supreme Court. And this may be my favorite episode of all the episodes we've done so far, because this is one of those topics that it is not really talked about by most casual historians and many, many Americans may not even know that this story uh, took place. But we are going to dive into this into deep detail today. Uh, but just to kind of recap about what we talked about last episode with FDR and his New Deal initiatives. He takes office in 1933 with a Democratic controlled House, a Democratic controlled Senate, and the first 100 days for FDR are fast and furious uh, to a, give relief, recovery, and to add reform uh, to not only the banking system, uh, but to farmers, um, to industry, and to, to change certain policy and enforce certain policy that was already on the books to help fix this situation. One thing that we did talk about last episode, and I think it's very important that we understand it right out of the gates, is that the New Deal did not get us out of the Great Depression. I think that may be one of the biggest misnomers in American history is that FDR's New Deal fixed the Great Depression, that it got us somehow out of the Great Depression, and that is inaccurate uh, and, it's, and it's kind of lazy. Uh, the reality is, whether we like it or not, World War II got us out of the Great Depression. What the New Deal does is it gives American citizens hope. It shows the American people that the government is trying to help them. We talked about things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, the National Industrial Recovery Act, and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and Social Security, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. All these things, while they did help put people back to work, they did help um, the elderly, like with the Social Security Act. All of these things are great. They did protect labor unions. All of these things are great, but they didn't get us out of the Great Depression. And that's not necessarily the entire point. It's not to say that the New Deal is unsuccessful because it didn't get us out of the Great Depression. That's, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is the New Deal gave Americans hope. And I think sometimes that can get lost in history. It gave the American people hope that their president, that their federal government was trying to help them. Now, with that comes a lot of spending. The result of the New Deal is that FDR's plan to provide the nation relief, recovery and reform led to a dramatic expansion of the role and powers of the federal government. And inevitably, because we live in a government or live in a country where the government has checks and balances and separations of powers, this is going to lead to a collision between branches of that government. In particular today, we're going to talk about how the executive and the legislative branch collide with the judicial branch of our government. 
During FDR's first term, he did not get to nominate one single Supreme Court justice, which if you really break it down, this is one of the few real powers, few duties that the President of the United States actually has, and that is to appoint a Supreme Court justice when it becomes vacant. But during his first entire term from 33 to 36, he did not get to appoint a single justice. Now, he referred to the Supreme Court, which, by the way, for those of you who don't know, there are nine Supreme Court justices, and there is no uh, law in the Constitution that states that there has to be nine. That was a law that was passed uh, in 1868 um, by Congress, setting it at nine. And, and our country has seen it be at three, at seven, at, um, and then at nine. But he, he refers to the nine Supreme Court justices as the nine old men. And all of these nine justices were appointed in previous administrations. In fact, six of the nine had been on the bench since the pre-depression days of the 1920s and even earlier. So from January 1935 to June 1938, we're going to see the judicial branch, specifically the Supreme Court, step into uh, the New Deal legislation. They are going to rule against, because many uh, Americans are bringing cases, many businesses are bringing cases against FDR's New Deal programs. And the court will rule against Congress and FDR in eight of the ten major cases involving New Deal statutes. Some examples of that would be the Panama Refining Company versus Ryan. Uh, another one would be Schechter Poultry, uh, the, the Schechter Poultry Corporation, that was a tongue twister, versus the United States in 1935. Both of these cases will be heard in January of 1935. The courts are also going to strike down key portions of the National Industrial Recovery Act, citing that it was unconstitutionally delegating power to the president and too broadly interpreted Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Another example of the court striking down New Deal legislation was in the case United States versus Butler a year later in January of 1936. In this case, the court struck down the Agricultural Adjustment Act as an unconstitutional invasion of states' rights. You had a lot of farmers, and, and this is one of these cases, who the excess crop that they grew was for their family. It wasn't just to have excess. They weren't trying to sell the excess. The excess was for their subsistence. But the government is telling them they have to burn it off. And they're saying, I shouldn't have to burn it off. This is for my family. This is not excess. I'm not trying to profit off of this. And, and they're going to challenge that in the court system. It'll work its way up to the Supreme Court. And Butler will win. FDR is puzzled and frustrated by these court's decisions, or by the court's decisions, rather. In fact, FDR, in response to the Schechter decision, will call this the most important decision probably since the Dred Scott case. Those were his words. 
And the reason he said that was because in his opinion, it prevented that federal government, uh, prevented the federal government from regulating manufacturing, mining, agriculture, and, and construction. And, and he did not feel that in this economic crisis, we should turn those completely over to private industry, that the federal government should be able to federalize those areas to help get the country back going. But publicly, FDR pretty much stays mum. He's got an election coming up. It's his re-election bid in 1936. And really, he, he stays relatively quiet about the Supreme Court and his frustrations with the Supreme Court until after he's elect, re-elected in 1936. In 1936, he is going to absolutely obliterate the Republican Party. This is a massive victory. You know, I don't know if there is another term. Landslides are what we call, you know, major victories. Uh, this landslide doesn't do this justice. He wins 98.5% of the Electoral College, and it is the largest popular vote victory um, since 1824. And the way that FDR takes this is, is pretty similar to the way he took 1932, is that this is a referendum by the American people. They chose me overwhelmingly because they want me and the Democratic Party to push these New Deal programs through. And this is where he begins to go public with his disdain for the Supreme Court. He's essentially saying, the Supreme Court is standing in my way and they shouldn't be standing in my way. The people want this. And so by the court saying no, they are in essence telling the people no. Now, Congress is also frustrated because Congress is the first step in pushing these New Deal programs through. And, and so their idea is to put out two different ideas on how to kind of overcome this or overrule this. Their first idea is that members of Congress should be able to limit the court either by requiring a two-thirds vote of the Supreme Court to overrule an act of Congress or by allowing Congress to get two-thirds of a vote to overrule a ruling of the court. FDR and the Brain Trust, as we talked about the Brain Trust yesterday, the Brain Trust is his group of economic uh, advisors in the cabinet, outside-the-box thinkers. They're going to get together, and they're going to come up with their own idea. You see, the Brain Trust has recently discovered an idea that one of the Supreme Court justices presented back in 1913 when he was President Wilson's attorney general. It's funny how your past comes out <laughs> and in politics it's no more apparent that things you do things you say in the past are going to come to light at some point and here the brain trust discovers that justice james reynolds who has to this point in time been one of the strongest opponents of new deal legislation back in 1913 under Wilson's administration as attorney general proposed an idea that a new judge be added or appointed for each judge who reached the age of 70 and did not retire. 
Now, again, for those of us that had no knowledge that it doesn't say in the Constitution how many Supreme Court justices we have, we may say, well, that's unconstitutional. No, it's not. Because nowhere in the Constitution does it say that we have to have nine. That was a congressional law passed in 1868. And that was a proposal made by one of the biggest New Deal critics. And they're going to use it. February 1937, FDR is going to deliver a message to Congress. And he will give them a proposal that he is going to present on a what he calls a judicial reorganization. Those are his words. And this judicial reorganization would call for an increase of the number of justices up to a maximum of 15, providing one new justice for each justice who does not retire at the age of 70. Here's the problem for FDR. FDR is usually pretty savvy, politically speaking. But he's going to have some missteps. And, and one of the things that he's going to argue as a reason why, the reason for the need to add Supreme Court justices, is that he's going to argue that we need to re re reduce the workload of the justices. He's saying they're overworked. They're doing too much. Their caseload is too heavy, which is laughable. But that's what he's selling. Now, after he gives this speech, there are a lot of people caught off guard. Number one, he doesn't really prepare the American people for what he is trying to do. And he never sought the advice of the Senate leaders um, in his own party. And because of that, he never got a gauge on how the American people, how the American public, or the high up Senate leaders in his own party would feel about this proposal. And after that speech to Congress, this is going to set off a very vitriolic debate and will even cause members of his own party to come out and speak out against the president's proposal of what the media will call court packing. Hatton Sumners, which was a Democrat from our state, the state of Texas, from Dallas, actually. He is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He's going to come out and speak out against this, saying that we cannot do this because what's, what's going to happen in the next administration where a Republican doesn't get what he wants and, and he has uh, the, the, the Supreme Court come out and say this is unconstitutional, is he going to then add more? It's a valid argument. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes wrote a letter as a rebuttal to FDR's assertions about the court's workload and performance. Uh, he stated that adding members to the court would only delay the court's work. It's not going to help reduce our workload. We don't need a reduction in workload. We just don't need people getting in the way of our work. Our job is to interpret the Constitution, and that's what we do. And by adding justices, we'll only delay our work. 
Justice Louis Brandes will also sign the Hughes letter. And Brandes um, will come into play because he is one of the New Deal supporters. And that's why he signed the letter. Fast forward to late March, 1937. From late March to late May, 1937, the court will help deliver kind of the final nail to FDR's court packing strategy by upholding New Deal laws. It's very crafty. You see, the Supreme Court is going to rule that certain New Deals that have been New Deal uh, programs that have been challenged are constitutional. So now you don't have the argument that they aren't upholding many of these programs, that they're trying to prevent the American people from having relief, recovery, and reform from this disaster. There are two justices, one of them being Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes and the other Justice Owens Robert, or Owen Robert, excuse me, that will cast the deciding vote. And typically they, they side with the conservatives on the bench. There were four conservatives that were, hills were dug in, and they voted against the New Deal any chance they got. But these two are going to switch their votes. Now, historically, we call this the switch in time that saved nine. That's a very famous quote uh, that many historians use with relation to uh, the court packing scandal. But these two justices, Charles Evan Hughes and Owen Roberts, switched their votes, who typically voted for conservative or with the conservatives, the four conservatives, they are going to switch their vote to support the New Deal legislation that was brought to them. Opponents of FDR's court packing plan argued that these rulings prove there is no need to add justices to the Supreme Court. In May of 1937, to add to uh, this story. Justice Willis Van Deventer, which was one of the four conservative justices, announces his retirement. So FDR finally in 1937 will get to appoint his first Supreme Court justice. And from that point on, from 1937 to 1940, FDR will get to make five Supreme Court appointments. After 1937, the new court will overturn earlier anti-New Deal legislation decisions. And by 1943, FDR completely remakes the court by appointing eight of the nine justices. So by the time that he is done, by the time he dies in 1945, eight of the nine justices will have been appointed by him. And here's a guy in his first term who did not get to make one single appointment. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's the only president in American history to win four elected terms. And so he's just naturally around longer than everybody. And over time, justices die, they retire, and, and he gets to appoint those people. But the court packing plan is one of the few times 
as I mentioned earlier, where FDR's political savvy backfired on him. He looks petty. He looks like he didn't get his way, so he was trying to take his ball and go home. He was trying to change the rules because the rules didn't work for him. But then you'll have those that argue that this was all strategy. That FDR was doing this intentionally, knowing that he wasn't going to get to add justices to the Supreme Court, but he was trying to get them to back off. And in reality, that is true. You know, the old adage, he lost the battle, but he won the war. He didn't get the justices added to the Supreme Court that he wanted, but some will argue that that never really was his intention. That he simply wanted the Supreme Court to get out of the way. And he also wanted them to know, quite frankly, that he was on the up and up in terms of knowing the law. He knew the law stated that he could add justices if he wanted to, as long as Congress approved it. I mean, that's how we got to nine in the first place. Uh, this was not a constitutional situation. There's nothing in the Constitution that states that we have to have nine. That was, like I said earlier in the episode, this was a congressional law that set it at nine. And he made the public very aware of that. And so those who say that this was just a, a strategy, a political ploy, they have an argument. Because in the end, the Supreme Court is not only going to back off, but they're going to rule in favor of a lot of the New Deal legislation that takes place in his second term. Next episode, we're going to talk about FDR as a wartime president. And this is also a very complicated topic to discuss. This is a president who is going to have his hands tied by Congress when it comes to war. 1933, Adolf Hitler takes power in Germany and immediately ceases payments for the war reparations of World War I and then immediately begins building his military, which was prohibited by the Treaty of Versailles. And as we get closer and closer to the end of the 1930s, there is this feeling in Germany that the only way to get out of the depression that is going on globally is to go to war. And we are going to dive into how, to, how FDR navigated through all the neutrality acts that exist from 1935, 36, 37, 38 to try to help the allies in France and England as they try to hold off Adolf Hitler. As always, guys, I hope that you learned something. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Uh, like I said, this is probably one of my more favorite topics to discuss because it's not a topic that's often discussed. Um, 
next time we will dive into FDR as a wartime president. A very complex situation that FDR is leading through. If you like the episode, uh, leave us some feedback. If you hated the episode, leave us some feedback. Uh, we'd also ask that you subscribe to the podcast so that anytime we release uh, a new episode, that it'll shoot you a notification. And as always, guys, just remember, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We'll see you next time.